Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, November the 27th, 2021. It is currently 12.50 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Empty Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And welcome to a brand new week of Bible study. We just concluded the previous week of Bible study where we looked at Psalm 100 verses 1 through 5. And now not only do we begin a new week of Bible study, we really are about to begin a new, I don't do we call it, a new couple of months of Bible study because for the next couple of months, we're going to have a very and when I, probably a couple of months, at least for the next couple of weeks, let's say that for, for probably the next month plus, is that, is that better? For the next month plus, we are getting ready to end to begin a new series of Bible study that I hope will be very, very beneficial and very, very interesting. Now, what we're going to do, a couple of things. Number one, if you have not signed up for the curriculum, you please sign up for the curriculum. Go to theologycentral.net. Go to the blog section. Look for the entry for Daily Discipleship Guide. Sign up for the curriculum. I think it will be very beneficial for this next month plus of study we're getting ready to begin. Um, so please do that. Uh, and I think I think that will be very beneficial. So get the curriculum. Well, what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks, again, month plus, is we're going to, we are going to look at some passages that are very, 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 very well known, but we're going to try to challenge maybe some of the shallow ways that they have been handled, and we're really going to try to dig in. So sign up for the curriculum. We have a lot to do, and you're going to notice when you look at the curriculum, you're going to notice we're skipping one. We're skipping one. There, there is one we're supposed to start tomorrow. We are skipping it on purpose because I want to give us a little bit of extra time. But trust me, I'm going to try to go back and work that in as an additional Bible study exercise. So, you will, Or I'll bring it for a sermon at the church. We'll find a place to fit it in. So you're not getting ripped off. You're not losing any money. I, I mean, I mean you're not paying, but you get the idea. You're, you're going to get everything. I promise you. I promise you. I promise you. So are you ready? We have a lot to do. Here's what we need to do. I'm going to be making a reference to the adult personal study guide. So if you have access to it, you may want to uh, go ahead and pull up the curriculum. I'm going to go back here. We are going to be looking at unit one, session one, dated for December the 5th. Unit one, session one, dated December the 5th, and it is entitled God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The text, Isaiah 7, 14, and Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, you'll notice the curriculum wants us to put the emphasis on Matthew 1, 18 through 25, but you will notice I'm going to refer to this as a week of studying Isaiah chapter 7, and the reason we're going to spend this week in Isaiah chapter 7 for this week of Bible study exercise is because I believe Isaiah 7 brings up a number of hermeneutical issues that sadly many people either are not aware of these hermeneutical issues, they don't understand these uh, principles of biblical interpretation, and so we're, it's going to be a good exercise and uh, it'll be some good lessons in biblical hermeneutics. So, 
If you're using the curriculum, again, it's free. Go to theologycentral.net, go to the blog section, find the article for Daily Discipleship Guide, follow the link, sign up. It's free. We don't want any, we're not asking for any money. We want you to have the curriculum and use it. Find Unit 1, Session 1, dated December the 5th. We're jumping ahead a little bit in the curriculum. That's okay. And this week, the whole week is going to be Isaiah 7. I know the curriculum wants us to focus on Matthew 1, 18 uh, through 25, but we're going to focus on Isaiah 7. So Isaiah 7, starting today, throughout the week, I want you reading Isaiah chapter 7 over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, I mean the, the basic rule of Bible study, the basic rule of Bible study is this. I have to laugh. We're, we're doing this live broadcast on Podbean. I have to laugh because Podbean shows when people come in and they show when people leave. And it, it's just it's just funny to, to, to watch that. It probably happens on Spreaker as well, but I can't see it. But on Podbean, and so when people come in and then they leave, you're like, what did I just say? What, what, what did I just said hermeneutics? Did, did, was that was that scary? Okay, so, but that's that's fine. That's one of the reasons we're on Podbean because we're gonna have people who are pop in and go, wait, that's not what I'm looking for. So that that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's that's okay. So, but I can't I can't look at the screen. I can't look at the screen. I, I gotta I gotta ignore the screen. Okay. So, but no, wait, we're not worried about that. We're worried about this week's Bible study. Isaiah 7, I want you to read it, to read it, to read it, to read it. The basic rule, if you don't know this rule, the basic rule is you can't do anything with a text of Scripture. You can't do anything. You should never even think about interpreting it until you have at least read it at a minimum of five times, and one of those times should be out loud. This is just a basic rule of Bible study. You have to read it five times, one of those times out loud. Everyone always says, why do I have to read it out loud? Because it's amazing when you read it to yourself and then all of a sudden you read it out, read it out loud, you'll, you'll go immediately, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, how did I miss that? Wait, what? Because sometimes when you just read, you just, to yourself, you're just like, and you're just flying through the words. But when you stop and read it out loud, sometimes you'll all of a sudden you go, wait, how did I miss that? Wait, wait, how, how did I, okay, wait, what? And then all of a sudden you see things completely different. And that is why you have to read it uh, out loud. So Isaiah 7 is going to be your friend this week. But let's kind of get an overview. This is what we're going to do. We're going to give you an overview of where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. Then we're going to do some preliminary work. And when I say, I should say, you are going to do some preliminary work in Isaiah 7, not me. I'm here today just to give you your assignments. I'm not going to do anything else. And I'm going to throw out a very important hermeneutical principle. And I'm going to cause all kinds of confusion and doubt about Isaiah chapter 7. But that's okay. All right, here we go. So I'm going to click on the adult personal study guide. Session one, right? Here we go. I'm waiting for it to load. All right. You gotta remember I'm out in the middle of nowhere. The internet connection here. I'm, I'm surprised the internet connection even works here for our live broadcast. I really am. All right, here we go. So uh the personal study guide, winter 2021-2022. All right. Then they have their basic things, they have the contents. I'm skipping all of that. They have the welcome. I'm skipping all of that. 
They have my group's prayer request. I'm skipping that. They have the pathway of discipleship. If you want to see where we're going between now and summer 2022, you can look and see that. And then they have this. The Christmas season is an ideal time to point others to Christ. Now, I'm going to say this. The Christmas season is an ideal time that you focus on Christ. Instead of always putting it about, it's time for us to get other people to focus on Christ, how about it's time for us to focus on Christ? I, I get very, 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 very irritated with Christianity at large and the church at large when it comes to, quote unquote, the Christmas season. Because we seem to have this built in in our brains, at least in some Christians, that it's the world's job that we, we've got to get everyone else to focus on Christ. We've got to get everyone else to focus on Christ. So then for many, that will get upset. And I've already seen, you know, emails and uh, from different ministries that, you know, make sure the stores are saying Merry Christmas. And it's like, no, I don't care if the stores say Merry Christmas. I don't care if they call it a holiday tree. I don't call, I don't care what they call it. I don't call it a Festivus. I don't care if they, I don't care what they do. I don't, I don't need the store to tell me Merry Christmas. It's not the job of the store. It's not the job of Walmart. It's not the job of Target. It's not the job of anybody to say Merry Christmas. I don't care if they're selling holiday trees, festive tree. I don't care what they sell. It, that's not their job. The job is this is the season for Christians to remember and to focus on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. By all means, if you have the opportunity to share this wonderful news that the eternal Son of God came and took on human flesh to die for sinners, by all means, share that with whoever you can. But it's it's not, we shouldn't focus on the so-called war on Christmas. There is no war on Christmas, okay? And even if there was a war on Christmas, who cares? I will argue that the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of Christianity was making Christmas a federal holiday. That was the worst thing that ever happened because it took the remembrance of the birth of Christ, the incarnation, and turned it into a secular holiday. And Christians get mad because they want the world to somehow, no, it's not the world's, it's not the, their job. And what drives me crazy is we run around yelling at all of the world that they need to say Merry Christmas and they need to sell Christmas trees, not holiday trees. While we find ourselves in these stupid cultural wars, look where most churches will be on Christmas Day. The doors will be shut, the lights will be off, and everyone will be home opening up their presents and shoving food down their throats. But we say it's about Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, we're going to celebrate your birthday by not showing up and by giving ourselves presents. Yeah, okay. So sometimes we, 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 there's a lot of just garbage that goes on in the Christmas season. So at my church, every Christmas, we have church on Christmas Day. It doesn't matter what day it is. If it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we have at least one service. I do teaching. We, we come together. We sing a little bit. We sing maybe a few extra songs. And then I preach an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. And it's because we're, we're just going to gather together to worship Christ. If, if we say it's about Christ, then let's make it about Christ. We don't do anything special. There's not the Christmas spectacular where we have camels walking through the sanctuary. It's just we get together, we sing some songs, I preach, and then I say, everyone, have a wonderful day. Merry Christmas. Remember the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Go home and have a wonderful day. That's how we do things. We don't, we don't do all of this. So 
I, I already with the curriculum, I just want to make sure we put the emphasis on that this coming season is a time for us to focus on the incarnation, the doctrinal and theological implications of said incarnation, all right? And we're going to do so by looking at very important texts of scripture that I think are typically either mishandled or handled in a very shallow way, which you're going to see that the curriculum is going to do that this year, but all right, or this coming couple of weeks. Here's what they want us to do. The, the, they want us to look, and these are going to be the dates in the curriculum. December the 5th is session one. We're, we're, we're going to jump ahead, and we're going to go ahead and cover that this week. Uh, December 12th will be session two. Again, we'll be a week ahead. December the 19th will be session three. December the 26th will be session four. January the 2nd will be session five. January the 9th will be session six. The reason we're jumping ahead is to give us ample time to really dig in to some of the theological and hermeneutical issues that we are sure to encounter through the next couple of weeks as we work through these Bible study exercises. But session one is entitled God with us. According to the curriculum, they want us to focus on Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which we will not do. We're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 7 because I think there's far more hermeneutical issues in Isaiah chapter 7, and it really demonstrates how to actually deal with some of this. And Isaiah itself is a book filled with countless hermeneutical issues. We, we Man, we could, spend, we could spend a year working on that. Then session two, the focus is on, well, they got Isaiah 9 and John 1, 1 through 9. Both of those, lots of, of very important concepts. I don't know how we're going to do that, but session two is the light in the darkness, Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We, we may, we'll, we'll have to see, again, that we may need an extra week just for trying to take apart Isaiah 9 and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Session three is the Savior who came to us, Luke 2, 4 through 12, 16 through 20 plenty of, to, to work on there. Then session four is the king who reigns forever, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. So what we may do is we may take two weeks and just work on Isaiah 9. Who knows? We're, we're, we're going to have to be flexible. We're going to have to be flexible. So we'll see. And we'll see what questions come in. Uh, the the um, number of questions, people struggling, that will tell us what we need to spend time with. Session five, the light and glory of God, Luke 2, 25 through 35. The ruler who cares for his people will be session six, Micah 5, 2 through 5, and Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6, and verses 9 through 11. Those are the sessions for the next couple of weeks. So let's go through them again. Session one, we're actually, so I'm not going to give you the dates because we're actually a week ahead. Session one, the God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, you just worry about Isaiah 7. That's the session we're getting ready to start, and I'm going to give you some of the pre preliminary assignments you need to start working on. Session 2 is going to be Isaiah, it's going to call, it's called the light and the darkness, Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We may put the emphasis on Isaiah 9, because I think there's more hermeneutical issues to deal with there. Um, and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 gets most of the attention, most of the teaching and preaching. So we may focus on the Isaiah 9 because I think it's more, maybe some more complications are there to, to try to figure out. 
Session three, the Savior who came to us, Luke 2, 4 through 12, 16 through 20. Very simple, very straightforward. We shouldn't have a lot of problems there. I mean, there's still plenty of there to unpack, but we'll, we'll have to work on that. The King who reigns forever is session four, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Luke 1, 26 through 33. Again, we may, we may group that Isaiah passage uh, together in one session and just spend the, the, that entire week on that chapter. Uh, the light and glory of God is session five, Luke 2, 25 through 35. Session six, the ruler who cares for his people, Micah 5. And Matthew 2, 1 through 6, 9 through 11, we may spend the time that week on Micah 5 uh, because, well, we had someone talk about not knowing a lot about the book of Micah. So we may make it a like overview of the book. We may just do a, a, a special focus on just the book of Micah itself. All right. Um, hey, thank you uh, for the person who just liked uh, the show. Thank you. We haven't really got into the show yet, but thank you. Thank you for my liking my introduction, which is so long-winded. Okay, all right, there we go. So that's where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. Remember, the curriculum is free, theologycentral.net, blog section, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, look for the entry for Daily Discipleship Guide. It'll take you to ministrygrid.com, sign up, curriculum is yours, free, use it, download it, it's all yours. And you'll have access to a lot of stuff in the curriculum. So that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to be doing. It should be be a fun study as always. You, the student, or my, I, I don't even like to say you, the student, and I'm the teacher. We're students together. So the students determine what we cover. The students determine. Because if you get into the text and you're like, whoa, what about this? What about this? What about this? Then I just come right back, turn on the microphone, do another live broadcast, and we talk about it, okay? And I don't know if we're, we'll probably, I mean, the live broadcast will go back and forth between Spreaker and Podbean since we're using both. Um, you'll, you'll have to just keep up with where we're going to be. And of course, then immediately after the live broadcast, the podcasts are available on every podcast app on the planet Earth. But all right, there we go. So that's what we're going to do. So here's our plan today. Isaiah chapter seven. I'm gonna give you your assignments. We're gonna do a little bit of reading. Going to do a little bit of hermeneutics here, a little bit of history, and I think this should be hopefully beneficial, all right? So your first assignment this week is simple. Read Isaiah 7 over and over again. Remember the rule. You can't do any study of a text. Definitely cannot do any interpretation of a text. So you've at least read it five times, and one of those times need to be out loud. That's the basic rule, but I don't want you reading it just five times. I want you living with Isaiah 7 this week. I want you to read it so many times that it becomes a part of your DNA, that you just know Isaiah 7. And listen, the more you know a passage, the less likely that you then someone can come along and manipulate you by claiming the text says something that it doesn't actually say. The way to protect you from scriptural manipulation is scriptural knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the less like no one can come along and say, no, 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 this is what it means. You're like, no, I've read it like 5,000 times. You're completely ripping it out of context. You're completely misinterpreting it and mishandling it. You've got to know it. Knowledge is the key there because a lot of people can do crazy things with it. All right, so read, read, read. Now, the second assignment, very simple, very straightforward. I want you to write out a basic summary of the overview of the book of Isaiah. I want you to know the 
date, author, purpose, historical context. This is so very important. So very, 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 very important. God bless you as well. Uh, And I'm responding to someone who made a comment in uh, the uh, Podbean uh, chat. Please, uh, you've got, we, if there's ever a book that you need the background to, it's the book of Isaiah. And, and, and well, just, you know, I'll, I'll scratch that. It's not just the book of Isaiah. It's all, of, at least the, the minor and major prophet books in the Old Testament, whether it's the major prophets or the minor prophets, and they're only major or minor because of the size of the books, not because of their importance. All of these books require you to know the background and the purpose of the book. Because so many people read and take these, takes promises from these books and just rip them so far out of their historical context. It's absolutely crazy. Like, you know, you'll read a passage which says, God, I know the plans I have for you to bless you. And people will take that and rip it out of context. You're like, whoa, 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 slow down. What are you doing? That passage in Jeremiah, that's a promise to the people coming out of Babylonian captivity. Why did you just rip that out of its historical context? So when it comes to these books, you've got to know who was it written to, why was it written, what was the historical setting, what was the purpose. You've got to know that. We go to Isaiah 7, and here's what everyone does. Isaiah chapter 7, everybody immediately runs to verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, I understand we can immediately run to the New Testament and apply that to Jesus, and I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't. But before we ever do that, we have to understand what is being promised in this historical setting and who is it being spoken to and how did this have any application to the original recipients of this message from the prophet? Right. That that's what you have to do. You can't just like, oh, wait, like here's a verse. Let's run over here. Well, wait, wait, wait. That verse was given in a specific historical setting to a specific group of people facing specific circumstances. So we ignore we almost always ignore when we go to the Old Testament. In many cases, the original recipients We're just like we almost act like that it was written directly for us, but it was originally written and spoken to people in their specific context. Again, in Jeremiah, the passage everyone always quotes about God knowing the plans he has for us. I've heard that read at high school graduations. I've heard that read everywhere. And I always want to raise, stand up and go, were you in, are you in, were you in the Babylonian captivity? So what are you ripping it out of its context for? Let's first apply it to its historical setting. I know that wouldn't go over probably good in a high school graduation, but I'd be like, hey, did y'all learn not learn anything in high school? Like how to read? Okay, but okay. Yeah, that probably wouldn't go over well either. But you get the idea. So you need to know the background. So this week, it's very simple. Read Isaiah 7 over and over and over. And then look, I want you to do background work on the book. What can you use? If you have a study Bible, this is the time to use it. I don't like using study Bibles um, in study first. I want to always study the text and then reference the study Bible. I see the study Bible almost like a commentary, but use everything. Study Bible, if they give an introduction to the book, use Bible dictionaries. I have one right here. Bible dictionaries are good. You can get them online for free. Just look up every source you can. Look up at least more than one to see where there's agreement and when there's disagreement. And all you need to do is I need you to figure out who it was written to, when it was written, 
what was going on? What's the purpose of the book? What's the historical setting? You've got to figure that out because when we come to Isaiah 7 and we have these messianic promises, these messianic prophecies that point to Christ, we need to first, though, seek to understand them in their historical context. Was there any historical fulfillment before we get to Christ? This is just a basic rule. Whenever you're dealing with any prophecy in the Old Testament, any prophecy in the Old Testament, here is the rule of thumb. You first ask yourself, was this fulfilled at any point in history? In other words, prior to us. In other words, we look back and are like, okay, here's the prophecy, let's say in Isaiah. That, that prophecy may be looking forward for the people who was it was originally given in the time of Isaiah, but it may have already been fulfilled. A lot of people will take promises and say, no, no, that's a future fulfillment. That's going to happen in the end times. And sometimes you're like, wait, that was fulfilled in this year. That was fulfilled. Like there's some pro prophecies that are specifically focused on 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by, by Rome. You've got to know what, you've got to look for the, has this already been fulfilled? You look for a historical fulfillment first. If you cannot find a historical fulfillment, then and only then do you move to a future fulfillment. I'm saying future to us. So whenever, so in other words, when I read these prophecies in Isaiah 7 that we're going to read, I ask, okay, was there any historical fulfillment? What did this have to mean? What did this mean to the people in which it was given? Now, if I don't find a historical fulfillment or I don't find a satisfactory historical fulfillment, then I look to the future. Now, also, we can look in the New Testament and see what they do with the prophecy, but you always start, that's just a basic rule of hermeneutics. When you're in the Old Testament and a prophecy is given, you look for the historical fulfillment first. Historical in this sense. You are looking back going, it's already been fulfilled. If you cannot find a fulfillment or you cannot find a satisfactory fulfillment, then you look to the future and go, does this have anything to say about the end times as far as I, how I am looking? I'm looking forward. It's a basic rule that so many people violate. They see a prophecy and they just immediately go, oh, that applies to the end times. Oh, that applies to now. Oh, that applies to me. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. These, these letters were written to people at a specific time. So here's the basic rule again, simple rule. Whenever you're reading in the minor prophets, major prophets, anything in the Old Testament, and a prophecy is given, before you immediately apply it to self, before you apply it to the future, you always ask, was there any historical fulfillment of it? You identify that historical fulfillment, you understand that historical fulfillment, and if that completely fulfilled it, you look for no future. You just say that that's where it was fulfilled. If you cannot find a satisfactory or a complete fulfillment in history, then and only then do you look to the future. You also then would look at what the New Testament does with said prophecy, right? That, that's very important to understand, okay? So what's your assignment this week? Read Isaiah 7 over and 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 over. And then I want you to do a basic background study of the book of Isaiah utilizing whichever source resources you have, Bible dictionary, 
That's great. Bible encyclopedia, wonderful. And you just need to write down the basic elements, who it, date, who it was written to, the purpose of it was written, and the historical context in which it was written. This is very, very important, all right? Um, okay, I thought someone had asked a question. All right, so th these are basic, basic hermeneutical principles to get us started in the book of Isaiah, right? Or, or at least get us started. And see, I'm going to want to study the entire book of Isaiah. Well, I've already done that once before, but th to this week, it's just going to be Isaiah chapter seven. Uh, don't, don't panic. We're not going to study the whole, there's no way we can study. It, it would take us a couple of years to work through the book of Isaiah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it would take more than years. It would take forever. Okay. But uh, we're going to be working on Isaiah seven. Okay. So there's your basic assignments. Read it. Background, context, know that. We'll do that together, but I like you, I'd like to give you some starting point. Now, are you ready? Let's dig into Isaiah chapter seven and let's do a little bit of reading here. And you're going to get your third assignment. Assignment one, read. Assignment two, basically write out a summary of the basic background information to the book of Isaiah. Author, time, date, purpose, historical context, all of that. Now, are you ready? Here we go. Isaiah chapter seven, verse one. Oh boy, this chapter. Oh, there's so much in this chapter. All right, here we go. And I'm gonna get us, I'm gonna try to get us down to verse 14. That's where I'm gonna try to get us here, all right? And I'm just gonna throw out some basic observation. Remember, for those who are brand new, never been a part of the Bible study exercises, Bible study exercises are done in a very interesting way. I do some of the teaching, and then I give, I leave most of it for you to work on. I'm just it's a guided Bible study exercise. The goal is for you not to be a passive listener, but to be an active participant. We have a curriculum. We get you, you email me what you've worked on, and then we work through it together. And then I'll come back and I do a, 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 then a lot of teaching on what we've already studied. So it, it's, a, it's a work together through the text to get you to actually be a student of the Bible, not just listening to what other people say about the Bible. That's the goal. All right, here we go. Isaiah chapter seven, verse one. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. All right, now, you've got a number of kings. You've got, got a number of things going on here. We have the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. That Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So the main thing is we have a time of military conflict, a time of military conflict, a time of war. Please note, we clearly now have a historical context that's being established. So immediately we know that what's proceeding, we've got to understand it in the context of the, the days of Ahaz. So it, the historical context is the days of Ahaz, and we have a, the going up against Jerusalem to war against it. So we have the days of Ahaz. There's a part of your historical setting. We have a little bit of what's going on. We have a, a, an attack upon Jerusalem that failed. They weren't able to ultimately conquer it. And it was told the house of David, saying Syria uh, is confederate with Ephraim, 
and his heart was moved and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind, right? So we have war, we have a specific time period, we have some situations going on that are concerning, that are problematic. Verse three, then said the Lord, then said the Lord unto Isaiah, go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shirar Jarshub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. All right, now, here's what I want you to do. It's very simple. Again, I'm not trying to give everything away. This is just your basic assignments to start this week of Bible study. You're going to read the book. I want book background. Now, I want you to just look up and just write down a basic summary of Ahaz, right? Basic summary of who Ahaz is. Don't have to go full-blown. Just the just look up an entry for Ahaz, say, in a Bible dictionary, and just get the basic who was Ahaz, just a couple of things about him, just a couple of things. Nothing major here. I want you to do more work on the back background of the book of Isaiah, but with Ahaz, just basic. And then I really want you to work on this. Isaiah, now this is so important, God speaks to Isaiah in the midst of all of this. You got military conflict. This is the days of Ahaz. He wants him to go forth and meet Ahaz. Simple, straightforward. But he tells him to bring someone with him. Isaiah is to go and he is to bring Shirar Jeshub thy son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. He is to take his son with him. Question, is there any significance to him taking his son? Why is he to take this son with him? The possible answer may lie in what his name means or signifies. Your job this week is to figure out what his name signifies. Shear Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit. You, you look up his name, Shear Jashub, look it up and figure out the possible meaning. Now look it up in more than one source. This is very important because sometimes when it comes to the meaning of names, you will find five sources with 15 different ideas. If there is no agreement, then let's not be dogmatic. If there is clear agreement on the meaning of the name, then we can become a little bit dogmatic and maybe figure out why. You got to go, Isaiah's got to go talk to Ahaz. Why is he bringing his son along? Why? Well, God seems to instruct him to bring his son. Why? Why is he doing this? Is there some reason? Does it signify something? I'm not saying there is. I'm not being dogmatic. I, but a Bible study is about asking the right questions. We have to observe what's in the text and then ask questions about what's in the text. Why, why is he bringing a son? I mean, it, it, it's hard enough to say his name, much less, why did you bring him? Shirar Jashub, why, why? Why did you bring him? All right. So he brings him. Now, verse four. And say unto him. Now, here's his message. You go to Ahaz, you bring your son. We have, it's the days of Ahaz. We have war going on. We have an attack upon Jerusalem. We have concern. We have fear. We have, we have a bad situation here. And in the midst of this, God goes to Isaiah. Isaiah, you go to Ahaz. You bring Shirar Jashub, your son, with you. And when you get there, here's what happens. All right. 
Say unto him, here's what he's to say. Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint hearted for the two trails of those smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the sons of Ramalia, because Syria of Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against the saying. So it's a word of comfort. He's like, you go to Ahaz, bring your son, bring your son, and then you're going to tell him, take heed, be quiet, and fear not. Do not be faint-hearted. So take heed, pay attention, Ahaz. Hey, be quiet, calm down, be quiet. Don't make any rash decisions. Fear not, don't be afraid, and do not be faint-hearted. So he's bringing him, he wants him to calm down, don't be afraid, don't make any bad decisions here. Don't make any bad decisions here, Ahaz. Now, what what is he going to do to try to calm him down? What, what, what is God's message here to Ahaz? What, what needs to take place here? Well, let's take a look here. All right. Um, he says, and don't be afraid that these people have taken evil counsel against thee. Don't be afraid. Let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach of, uh, therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabal. Now, he says, hey, these people are coming. They want to destroy you. They want to set up a new king. Don't be afraid. Now, this is like, <laughs> it's like, it's like someone knocking on your door going, hey, uh, listen, okay, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to calm down. But here's what's coming kind of happen. There's some people coming for you and they want to kill you and they want to replace you. But hey, don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. You'd be like, wait, why are you telling me this? So he's being told, there's, there's definitely a serious situation developing. There's clearly a situation where they want to remove you and destroy you. But hey, calm down. Don't be afraid. It's all going to be okay. Let, let's, what, what is he going to say here? Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Hey, don't, it's not going to happen. They're going to try, but you don't have to be fearful. It's not going to come to pass. So now you, he may be, you, you may be thinking, well, what, you know, if I, now let's just be honest. Let's not play church here. Let's be honest. If I heard all of this, I'd be a little bit like, wait a minute. Okay. Uh, uh, you just gave me some really bad news, Isaiah. Uh, you brought your son along. I still don't know why you brought him along. All right. You brought your son. You just told me not to be worried, but then you tell me that they're all out coming to basically kill me and replace me. And you're telling me that it's not going to happen. Okay, that's great. But how do I know any of this is true? How do I know, like, what, what, what you're telling me? I'm, I'm basically I have to trust you and what you're telling me. All right, this, this is what he goes on. Verse eight For the head of Syria, Damascus, and the head of Damascus, Rezin, and within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So he's, Isaiah is to basically tell Ahaz, simply, this is basically the message. We'll summarize. Hey, bad things are developing to come, and people are coming to try to take you out and kill you and replace you. But don't worry about it. It's all going to be taken care of. 
They're all going to fail and ultimately they're going to be destroyed and they're going to be undermined. You have nothing to worry about Ahaz. And Buddy tells him, very interesting, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So you, you need to believe and trust what's happening here because if you don't, the idea is if you don't believe, you're going to end up trying to make some really bad decisions here that's going to be detrimental to your longevity. So you need to listen here, right? So there, we, got, we got the historical context. So we could do this if we're outlining this. Isaiah 7, Verses one through nine, you can put the historical context and you can outline the basic elements here. Who is attacking whom? What is the promise here? Here's all the historical context. You've got specific promises of what's going to happen to Syria, uh, Syria, Damascus. You've got an Ephraim. You've got specific promises of what's going to happen to them. But that's all we'll call that the historical setting. We've got the historical setting Actually, we could break it down in two parts. I'll, I will, I will, I'll let you do, I'll, I'll give you a, a possible options in your outlining. Isaiah 7 verses 1 through 9. You could have the historical setting and promises, and you can figure out how to split up the verses. You have the historical setting. Here's what's going on. Here are the promises. Historical setting, promises. So you had two parts in your outline, and you can break up Isaiah 7, 1 through 9 to cover that. Right? That's the first part. Very simple, very straightforward. But you have to know that historical context because it's in that historical context where we get the next part, which is the emphasis for this week's study, which starts in verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. It's almost like God knows, which obviously he's all-knowing, that Ahaz is a little bit like, wait a minute here, that there, there, there could be a possible concern. Like, you want me to trust? I, these people are coming to kill me, and you just want me to trust that it's all going to work out. Okay, that, you, you, you can see why there would be a little bit of concern and a little bit of fear and maybe a little bit of reluctance and say, maybe I need to come up with a plan. So then God offers him a great idea. Hey, you just ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. Wherever, and I'm going to take I'm going to give you a sign so that you know this is going to come to pass. But look what happens. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Ahaz's response is very fascinating. Hey, no no no. Not not that's it. I'm not I'm not asking for anything. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to do so. Now, this is where we could have, you, you can work on this this week. Is Ahaz in the right here or he's in the wrong? Is he, is, he, is he acting super spiritual, but it's not really spiritual? Is it, is it, is it, we, there's a lot of ways we can interpret this, right? We could go with, and this is one of those situations where in the historical narratives, they don't offer, there's no, there's no narrator to the historical narratives in the Bible. It just tells you what happened. It doesn't offer any, some kind of judgment or interpretation. It just says, here's what happened. And then the reader, we've got to figure it out. So there's two ways I think of this. One, that Ahaz is just being very genuine. Hey, Lord, I don't want to tempt you. 
I don't, I don't want to ask anything. And he's being very genuine and very spiritual. But then there's another way of looking at it that's a little bit more cynical. It's Ahaz saying, look, Lord, I'm going to act spiritual. I'm not going to ask anything. I'm not going to tempt anything because I've already got my own plan. I've already got my own plan. I've got a plan here and how to fix this. These people are not going to attack me. These people are not going to kill me. I'm going to fix this. Is it because he's already got his own plan? So he's acting spiritual to cover up the fact that he's going to do it his way anyway? Or is he genuine? Now, if you, could, if you think you can find the answer in the text, then by all means, you can let me know. I think sometimes we act spiritual when the reality is we're not as spiritual as we, I think a lot of our acting of being spiritual sometimes covers up the lack of true spirituality. Sometimes when we have to put forth our spirituality and be loud and proud about it, it's because we're covering up the reality of what's really there. But I don't know, you, you can make your own decisions, but he, he refuses. So then look what happens here. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Very interesting verse, verse 13. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Now, is this, do we view verse 13 as a rebuke? I'm not, I'm not going to try to give away too much right here. Remember, Bible study exercise. Now, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, stop right here. Is the sign here to Ahaz or is it no longer about Ahaz? You don't want a sign? Fine. I'm going to give a sign to the house of David, not to you. They say, you don't want a sign? I'm not going to give you a sign. Or is the sign to, hey, okay, Ahaz, you don't want a sign. Well, I'm going to give a sign and it's going to be this sign. Well, if it's this sign, then what does it have to do with Ahaz and his problem? What does it have to do with anyone in that particular context since this sign seems to be pointing to Christ? Now, this has led to much specu speculation throughout church history. Some believe that there, this is really, there's two parts here, right? Part one had a historical fulfillment, right? Some would argue that the Lord did have a woman conceive and bear a son. And that somehow was proof to Ahaz and to them that God was going to keep his promise. Now, we could, you can do some speculation. There's going to be plenty of commentaries that will bring this up. You can see what they have to say. You can say whether you agree or disagree. Or there's another. So there's one approach in church history that says, okay, there had to be at least some fulfillment at the time of Ahaz. Some kid, some child was born to give them some idea that, hey, God is going to keep his promises. Right? So some will make that argument. All right. Um, okay, making sure that no one left a message. So that's that's one approach in church history. The other approach in church history is because Ahaz refused a sign, then God said, Fine, I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to give you one to the house of David, which will ultimately be the coming of Christ in the incarnation, born of a virgin, Mary, 
we fulfilled ultimately in the New Testament. And that ultimately this sign had then nothing to do with the historical setting. Now, that in some ways makes it simple. Okay, like he's just like, okay, Ahaz, you don't want a sign, forget. I'm going to give you the sign. But that sign, that fulfillment would have nothing to do then with the historical setting of this danger being imposed on Ahaz, these, these countries wanting to come to basically get rid of him and replace him as king. It would have nothing to do with that. It would, it would be... It would have nothing to do with that. So then how do we remove it from its historical setting? Is it basically like, okay, fine. I'm going to still do what I'm going to do, but I'm going to give a different sign for a different historical setting and a different place. Now, what would be then the possible spiritual significance of how could we then take the historical setting and draw a spiritual possibly implication? Throwing out an idea just a theory. The context here is a king trying to be overthrown by a group of people. And he's saying, don't be afraid, don't worry. All right, I'm going to take care of the situation. And he ultimately makes a promise that I'm going to bring forth a, a sign. A virgin's going to conceive and bear a son, and his name is called Emmanuel, basically meaning God with us. So, is it possible, now we got to be careful here, that the picture is this, that humanity throughout history have sought to replace God as king with their pseudo-kings. They've wanted to replace God with their own king. In other words, I mean, this is we see this throughout the Old Testament, right? Israel did not want God to be king. They wanted an earthly king. Over and over, they didn't reject they didn't reject earthly authority. They were rejecting God's authority. And so that ultimately the sign of man's rebellion against the true God is that God would send a son, God with us, who would then redeem and restore men who have attempted to overthrow the authority of God. It's, in other words, God saying, okay, I'm going to take this historical situation and I'm going to use it to do a ultimate fulfillment for the problem of this fighting against God's authority. Maybe the, the, it's just an interesting, the, the historical setting there cannot be overlooked. Is the sign for Ahaz or does God just say, I'm going to forget you Ahaz. And there's no, there was no historical fulfillment of any kind for Ahaz, for any of the people at the time that this will ultimately, I'm going to use this historical setting to send forth my son Emmanuel, God with us as the ultimate fulfillment for a, a, the larger problem of men trying to overthrow the authority of God. You, you can ask your own, you can ask yourself that question. Then verse 15, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Right? Then, so you have, think of it this way. You have the historical set in, in Isaiah 7, 1 through 9, you have the historical setting and you have promises. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16, you have the sign from God. 
the ultimate sign from God, which is Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. Now, verse 17 to 25, I'm not going to do anything with right now. Remember, Bible study exercise, I do part of it, I leave the rest with you. I'll have you, well, we won't even worry about 17 through 25 right now. Don't even worry about 17 through 25. Just worry about Isaiah 7, 1 through 16. That's all I want you to focus on. I want you to outline it, and then you can try to answer some of those questions I have put forth. So here is your assignment starting this new week of Bible study. Read Isaiah 7 over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Do a simple but very, I'm going to say simple, but make sure you don't leave anything out overview of the book of Isaiah. I need you to know the date, the time, the purpose, and the historical setting, right? We need to understand that. Very simple, right? Number three, start working on an outline. Start working on an outline for Isaiah 7. I've already done part of the work for you. Next, I need you to do a little basic overview of Ahaz. I know I'm not doing these in the exact order I gave them, but that's okay. Do a little work on Ahaz, just basic summary of who he is since he's the key, one of the key characters in this chapter. And then I want you to figure out what in the world is the meaning of the name of Isaiah's son, Shir Arjashib, because there's some weird reason that he he's to bring a son along when he confronts Ahaz. There's got to be a possible reason. What is the meaning of that name? Figure that out, all right? So you've got the outline. You've got looking up these names, Ahaz and Shir Jashub, figuring out why Isaiah is to bring him. You've got, so you've got the outline, you've got those names. And then what I simply want you to do is spend some time looking at Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. And I want you to look at this sign and I want you to try to figure this out. Was the sign to be to Ahaz, but Ahaz rejected. So then forget Ahaz. Now it goes to the house of David. And if it goes to the house of David, what does that sign signify? Does it have any connection to the historical setting we see in Isaiah 7? Or is this a situation where, okay, Ahab, you don't want, or Ahaz, you don't want the sign. Fine. I'm going to give it in the future, but there's also some kind of fulfillment that will occur in the history of Ahaz that will give him some idea that God's going to keep his promise. This is the debate in church history. There's lots of disagreements on it. I will argue that the text does not indicate that Ahaz is going to receive anything. The text seems to indicate, okay, you don't want it? Fine. House of David, here's going to be the sign. Emmanuel, born of a virgin, God with us, God incarnated, right? Christ will take on human flesh. It's the son of the eternal God, right? That That's what is going to be the sign. Now, how does that fit? Does why does God put the sign way out there and skip the historical setting? Or does the historical setting supposed to picture something deeper? That's what we're going to have to figure out this week. And that's what we're going to work on. So there's your assignments. Read it, read it, overview, outline, basic understanding of who Ahaz is, basic understanding of Shir Arjashib, why his name, like is it any reason he had to bring his son, and then just work on verses 10 through 16, asking yourself, wait a minute. So Ahab didn't want the sign. Why? Was, it, was, was he godly in not wanting the sign? 
what was he? Or was he covering up his lack of godliness by trying to act spiritual? And then what does God do here? Does God say, okay, fine, forget you completely. I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to give you any sign. I'm just going to jump into the future and throw the sign there. Bethlehem, the birth of Christ, that's where the sign occurs. Well, if that's where the sign occurs, then what does it have to do with this historical setting? Does the historical setting really paint the picture? Fighting against the king, fighting against authority, trying to replace the authority. That's what human beings have been trying to fight against God from the very, I mean, right from the fall. They rejected, Eve rejected God's authority. She wanted her way. She wanted what she wanted. Men have been rejecting God's authority over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Well, what's the answer for it? Well, you could say the answer is going to come destroy everyone. But before that, I'm going to send my son, God with you, Emmanuel, to save and redeem and reconcile rebellious people back to the true God and king. Is the historical setting make the picture of what happened in Bethlehem more significant? Or do we just remove the prophecy completely from the historical setting? Just ignore the historical setting. Just, hey, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Here, here here's just, and that's what the, the curriculum does. They just quote Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's interesting. Isaiah was to bring his son in confronting Ahaz. And the ultimate sign is the birth of a son. Is that a coincidence? Something interesting is going on there. All right, we're going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop. We're going to have to stop. All right, basic hermeneutical lesson from today is this. Anytime you're reading the minor prophets, major prophets, anything in the Old Testament, and there's a prophecy, we first look for how that prophecy could have been fulfilled historically. If we cannot find an adequate interpretation, an adequate fulfillment of said prophecy in the past, then we can move it to our future. In this particular case, we want to ask, is there any fulfillment to this sign to Ahaz? Because some people say, yeah, a son had to be born and that was a, but it wasn't born of a virgin. And I just, I have a hard time with that making any sense. It seems like he refused and God said, fine, here's the sign. But I don't think we can remove the sign from the historical context. And obviously the sign of Emmanuel being born of a virgin, clearly that points to Christ and the New Testament would attest to that fact. So we know it has been fulfilled historically. Just that's the principle. We always look for the historical fulfillment first because so many times I'll see people read something in Isaiah or something in the gospels and say, oh, that's referring to the end times. I'm like, no, that's referring to 70 AD. That already happened. But so, so that, that occurs frequently. But in this particular case, we know when this was ultimately fulfilled, the birth of Christ. But does, what does that have to do with the promise to Ahaz? What? Ahaz refused, so then what? how does that sign fit in? I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm repeating myself because I want you to, to be thinking about this this week. And then you can email me your thoughts and questions, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll look at it. Take a look at the curriculum, see what they have to say. And I can't wait to see your work, see what you've done. Remember, read it, outline it, 
book, book overview, basically a book overview. Make sure you do a, basically a book overview of the purpose of the book of Isaiah, who it was written to, what was going on. Very simple, but don't leave anything out. Make sure you do a little background study of Ahaz, just your basic points. And then Isaiah's son, what's the meaning of his name? And does that have any significance to why he was to bring him to Ahaz? And do you find it interesting that he was to bring a son and then the ultimate sign was the birth of a son of a virgin, born, born of a virgin, Emmanuel. It's just interesting that you have this, a son mentioned, Isaiah bringing his son, and God's going to bring forth his son. There's a lot to consider. All right, we'll stop right there. All right, thanks to anyone. If, you've, if this is your first time listening to any of the Bible study exercises, remember the way these are designed is I do some of the teaching, but then I give you the work. And then you, you get to participate. And then later on, I'll come back and do more like a full-blown teaching sermon on that section. And then, then you've, but you've gotten to study it for yourself. The key isn't for you not to be a passive listener, but an active participant. We've done hundreds of the Bible study exercises. You can find them. Well, all of them are found all over all the podcast apps. Wherever Theology Central Podcast is, you can find the Bible study exercises listed there in that podcast because they're, they're all over the place. So wherever you get your podcast from, you can find the Bible study exercises as a part of the Theology Central podcast. And we do this to try to get people to actually study the Bible so that they're not listening to other people study it, but they study it for themselves. And I do this by doing some of the teaching and then asking lots of questions. Lot, because Bible study is all about questions and observation. You have to do the observation before you can do the interpretation. I'm sorry, Heather, for repeating myself because I know she knows this. <laughs> you, there, the Bible study is observation. You cannot interpret something until you've observed it. The quality of your interpretation is based off the quality of your observation. Poor observation leads to poor interpretation. So the first part is just reading and observing, observing, gathering facts, information, information. Once we gather all of that, then we can move over to some interpretation. So a lot of this is a lot of doing a lot of observational work this week. Background, Ahaz, Isaiah's son. But there are some things for you to consider there as well. What in the world's going on here? And I can't wait to get your thoughts. All right, I'll stop right there. Thanks for listening to another uh, Bible study exercise. This is the first time we've ever done one on Podbean. Typically, they're done on Spreaker. Thank you for all the people who listened. If you're new, welcome. If you would like to follow us, please hit the follow button. We always do appreciate that. And remember, our podcasts are found anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Have a great Saturday. And you've got your Bible study in front of you. Dig into the book of Isaiah. And if you have any problems or questions, I'm an email away. Newsif at yahoo.com. I always respond as fast as I possibly can. But right now, I need food because I'm starving to death. All right.